Rosalind Moss comes to us from Catholic Answers, is that correct? Yes, and uh, she's in, been on, um, she's very well known people who watch EWTN, uh, which is the Catholic <coughs> television network that's seen all over the world, really. Um, I've heard of Rosalind for many years and have followed her work. Um, she has a fascinating story, and I'm not going to, um, she's going to use it as part of her talk, but I can say you were a Jewish, uh, you are Jewish, right? And, um, and became an evangelical and then became a Catholic. So um, that's at least one part of the journey of, of several of you that you have in common. And uh, she was telling me just before that it was the Eucharist and the Mass that was the biggest challenge and then the biggest reason that she became Catholic. So in many senses, it's perfect to have her here today. And so I'd ask you to welcome her and take it away. Thank you, Barbara. And I've heard of Barbara Nicolosi for many years, too. <laughs> and it's an honor for me to be here. I mean, truly, bless you for the work you're doing and the hearts you have. And thank you, Father, for being a priest. Thank you, Father Willie. Nothing greater this side of heaven than a priest. My first Bible study, I, I gave my life to Christ 32 years ago. I'm 164 right now. <laughs> and proceeded to try to save Catholics for the next 18 years, get you all out of the church or whoever's in it out. And God did his thing. And I'm Catholic 12 years now. So I wear a cross with the Star of David. And I bunked into a man in a supermarket. And you could you look at me, you're not sure I'm Jewish. You look at him, you knew. <laughs> so he looked up, because our baskets crashed into one another, and he looked at, he saw this, he said, don't you have a couple of confl conflicting things going on? <laughs> so I said to him <laughs> what I say to every Jewish person I meet before I let them give a second sentence. I said to him, well, you see, I'm Jewish, and I'm Catholic, because I believe that Jesus Christ, they can't even stand the name, because it wasn't allowed in my house growing up, is the Jewish Messiah. In fact, he's God. And he came to earth, and he died for our sins, and he rose to give us life, and he established the church, and it's a Catholic church. So I'm in it. And so the most <laughs> Jewish thing a person could do is to be Catholic. Now, who are you? <laughs> they have to hear all that before I let them speak. <laughs> and he was actually uh, Jewish, but... I said, you believe in God? He said, nah, I don't know from God. He was into New Age and many things and doesn't know that God exists. And I said, oh, I, should. I said, you couldn't stand there saying you don't know from God if there wasn't a God who made you and gave you a mind and a mouth that you could say such a thing. <laughs> but faith is a gift at any stage, at any point in our lives. It's a gift. It's a gift gift of God's grace. Grace is the very life of God in our souls. So I, what I'll do is, as Barbara said, I'll tell you how I came to understand the Mass and the Eucharist. Um, the two things that made me Catholic. The two greatest things that would have kept me from the Church, as Barbara said. And I'll tell you by way of my conversion story. Because I started out in Brooklyn with a conservative Jewish home. And my mother, my father, my grandparents all back. And we sat down to the Passover table every year of our lives with our extended family. And even as children, 
We loved it. All the foods on the table we wouldn't eat for an hour and a half because we would first recount the story of God's deliverance of his people Israel from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And as children, we loved it. We didn't get impatient. It wasn't a history lesson. It was for us the past made present because God delivered us, you know, with his outstretched arm. We went through the sea. He split the sea for us. Abraham is our father. It was our history. It was, in a sense, made present every Passover that we recalled who we were, whose we were, that God has delivered us and that God is faithful to take us to whatever the end is. And we knew that one day the Messiah would come. And when Messiah came, he would set up his kingdom on earth, a literal physical kingdom on earth, he would collect the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth and put us back in Jerusalem where we belong. There would be peace, and life would make sense. And we waited every year. And every year it was somebody's turn to go to the door. We'd have a chair for Elijah, the prophet Elijah, who would precede the Messiah. We'd have a chair for Elijah. We'd have our door open for Elijah to come and the Messiah to follow. And every year it was somebody's turn to go to the door. And when I was 11 years old, and my brother David, two years older than me, was by mitzvah, it was my turn to go to the door to see if somebody was in the hallway. Elijah, Messiah, somebody. <laughs> and it was empty. And my little 11-year-old legs were shaking. I was so scared. I didn't know what I would do with them if they were out. <laughs> so the hallway was empty. And I turned around to our extended family, a few dozen people, and I said, he hasn't come. Elijah hasn't come. The Messiah is not there. Nobody's there. And we would go on with the Seder. And I went to bed at 11. And we would leave the Seder every single year, singing next year in Jerusalem. Because Messiah's going to come, you know. And he didn't come this year, so he'll come next year. And when he comes next year, next year we'll be in Jerusalem. And I remember going to bed as that 11-year-old thinking, is there really a Messiah? Is he really going to come? But we believed it. It was the only hope the world had. Into our teens, my brother, two-year-old, Brother David started questioning truth. Is there really a God? And David read everything you could read. If I live to be 200, I'll never read as much as he's read. Every ism he embraced for six months, and it <laughs> fell apart. Nothing answered his heart, and he finally declared himself an atheist. And I, I said, into our teens, I said, David, how can... I am because of whatever is. I even began to question the existence of God into my teens and 20s. So I needed to label myself. I called myself an agnostic. I figured I am because of what is. If there's a God, therefore I am. If there's no God, therefore I am. And my knowledge or lack of it doesn't determine what is, so I know. How is knowing going to make a difference in your life? When David declared he was an atheist, I said, David, how can you know there's no God? I can't imagine anyone knowing that much. <laughs> how could you know all there is to know and know there's no God? What an insanity to me. But David, <coughs> but David never stopped searching. So when we were, I never searched because I thought to myself, so what if you could know? Wouldn't it be like looking for a needle in a haystack? But what if you could know? What if you could find truth? What if truth meant that there's really a God? Now you know that. How is knowing going to make a difference in your life? So I never searched. It'd be nice to find a reason why mankind was on the earth. I never had an answer to that. 
and no one ever filled the emptiness of my heart, no one or nothing. But how could you find it? And what if you found it? How is no one going to make a difference? So David never stopped searching. And he was married with a few children, and they started asking questions, so he figured he's got to find a religion to raise his children in, and his wife too. And he came across an article. We were each, we were in our early 30s. He came across an article that he read to me one night when I was visiting. We were in New York then. And the article said that there was such a thing as Jewish people, alive today on the face of the earth, who believed that Jesus Christ, a name that was not ever allowed in my house, we didn't know who he was, we didn't know he was Jewish, all we knew about Jesus is that he wasn't for us. That's the only thing we ever learned about him. This article said that there are Jews who believe that Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah the rest of us are waiting for. I was 32 years old. I had never heard such a thing in my entire life. I'll never forget the shock that went through my system. I said to David, upstate New York in Poughkeepsie, where I was sitting in their home, I said, David, I don't care who believes what in this world. Anybody can do their own thing. But Jewish people believe this. Jewish people believe that the Messiah, the only hope the world has, came already. He was here on earth already, 2,000 years ago, and nobody knows that he came. (laughs) He didn't make an impact. He didn't set up his kingdom. We're not in Jerusalem. And there's no peace. And he left. (laughs) He left. Nobody knows he was here. And he left. The only hope the world has. (laughs) Utter, utter insanity to me. And David said, Ross, I didn't say it was true. That's what this article said. And the article that we read in New York also said that all these Jews who believe this were all out in California. <laughs> and around down a list of what they call themselves, Hebrew Christians, Messianic Jews, Jews for Jesus. And I thought to myself, you know, there's all kinds of troubled people in the world. Jews are just as entitled to be troubled as anybody else. You cannot be Jewish and believe in Jesus. But you can be Jewish and have problems. So if they're Jews who are troubled, it has nothing to do with me, has nothing to do with truth. I moved out to California the following year. No relationship to that conversation. I run uh, two companies in New York, one at a time, (laughs) and moved out to California for just the sake of change. You take yourself wherever you go, but the sake of change. And I was walking through Westwood near UCLA on a Sunday afternoon and saw in the distance a young, hippie-ish-looking fellow to me. I, in his 20s, with a beard, handing out some kind of tracks, flyers, and a t-shirt that said Jews for Jesus. I could not believe these people existed. <laughs> and I went up to him. In fact, I was with a friend, and I wouldn't let anyone who, who knew me see me talking to such a person. So I asked my friend to go someplace for a half hour or so, and I went up to this Jew for Jesus, and he gave me a little flyer, and the little flyer said, if being born hasn't given you much satisfaction, try being born again. <laughs> and he had a little happy face. And I tried not to show it. But that little flyer shot a knife through my heart. I had everything the world could give. I was in love. I had a good social life. I had a great business life. I earned a terrific I was hired by a company in Santa Monica to open up a San Francisco office with my salary, stuff, 
I lacked nothing this world could give me, except I had only one problem, which my best friend didn't know, and that is no matter how much I had, money, love, success, whatever the world can give me, nothing ever gave me a reason to live. And nothing ever filled the deep sense of emptiness, meaningless, purposelessness I lived with my entire life, and now a little flyer's telling me I could be born again. I never heard those words. How could you go into your mother's womb and come out again? I never <laughs> heard them. They were Jewish. They told me they believed that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah. But not the Messiah only, but God. God come to earth. Never heard that one before. The Messiah was to be God. Forget it. A man can't be God. You don't check that out. They told me that God exists. I thought he did. And that you could know that. I said, well, fine. So what are you going to do with knowing? But then they said, you can know him personally. Twilight Zone. I called them fools. I said, no, 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 no. You believe what you believe so strongly, you forgot you believe it. You think you know it. What do you mean you know God? You talk to him, he answers you. They insisted they did. They insisted that God created us for a relationship with himself. And I went home and I thought to myself for the first time, what if there's really a God? I thought there was. What if you could know that? Could knowing make a difference in your life? But what if you could know him personally? Twilight Zone. But I followed these troubled Jews around for months, in case they were on to something, just in case. They used to pick me up in their Jews for Jesus fan. I thought I would die. <laughs> <laughs> for months they told me Christ died for my sins, their sins, the sins of the world. That's fine. I took that sentence, Christ died for your sins. I speak English. They could have been speaking any language I never heard before in my life. I looked up in the dictionary every word. I looked at the word Christ, found out it was the English translation of Messiah. That blew me away just a little bit. But die, D-I-D, for, F-O-R, my, M-Y, every word I looked up, put in a sentence, no clue. One night, the night that changed my life forever, I was with 12 of them, 12 Jews for Jesus and me. 12 evangelical Protestant Jews for Jesus and me. I didn't know what an evangelical Protestant was. I was very educated. There's two people in the world, Jews and non-Jews, that's it. <laughs> I never even heard those terms. We're at a Hawaiian restaurant in Santa Monica. 12 of them and me. They start in on me again. Roz, Christ died for your sins, the sins of the world. At that restaurant, I said, would you hold it there, please? You've been trying to tell me this for months. I don't have a clue what that sentence means. I said, for the sake of this discussion, let's say Christ died for your sins, my sins, the sins of the world, whatever that language means. So he did it, I'm whatever that is. My question then is, what for? Why did he do it? What was in a man's mind to go to the cross and do that? What was he thinking? When I asked that question, those 12 Jewish believers took me through the Old Testament sacrificial system, which I never knew through all my years in Judaism growing up. And what they said to me in two and a half hours, I'm going to tell you in two and a half minutes because I've got this down pat. Mm -hmm. They said, Ra's God is. I knew that. He's holy without sin. I knew that. We're sinful. I knew that. But I knew nothing else they told me that night. They said, Ra's, we come into the world original sin. 
branch broken off. We come into the world separated from God. And if we leave the world that way, said they, we will be separated from God for all eternity. Because the wages of sin is death. Now, they knew that I didn't think the New Testament was a kosher book. They threw verses at me left and right, but they didn't tell me they were Bible verses. I didn't know. But they said the wages of sin is death. It went right through me. I said, wait, 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 wait. The wages of sin is death. A wage is a salary. It's what you have earned. It's coming to you. You deserve it. You've worked for it. The wages of sin is death, meaning we have earned death that's coming to us. If God were fair, they said, and gave us what we deserve, we'd be dead. And they said, what is death? Death is an inability to respond to life. So they said to me that night, stick a pin in a corpse, there's no response. There's no ability to respond to life. So they said, well, I stick a spiritual pin in you, and there's no response. Because the things of God are foolishness to the natural man scripture left and right and I didn't know it the wages of sin is death what we've earned every one of us is death from God from a holy God he is a holy God they said who must punish sin and they took me through the Old Testament to show me that without through the Old Testament without the shedding of blood there could be no remission of sin they took me through the Torah Leviticus says God said to the Jewish people I have given it to you for the life of the flesh God said, is in the blood. And I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement to your, for your souls. Leviticus 17, 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. To pay for the sin. And so, they took me back to the Exodus. Exodus 12. Where God freed the children of Israel. And what was he going to do? To send the angel of death over Egypt that night. And all the firstborn would be killed of man and beast. You know the story. But the Jewish people were to take a lamb, a male, a year old, without blemish, without spot, kill the lamb, <coughs> put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. When the angel of death flew over Egypt that night, all would be killed except the houses that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost because the lamb died in the place of the firstborn and the life of the firstborn would be spared. And they went through the entire sacrificial system. And they showed me, when they got out of Egypt, through the sea, God put them in the foot of Mount, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And Moses and Aaron would build an altar. And the people would bring bulls, lambs, goats, they said to me, whatever the sacrifice for sin required. And if it was a lamb, like the Old Testament uh, lamb had been, like the lamb they had just experienced, hang on one second, I've got to do this. This is a Jewish custom. <laughs> By the way, you do have water in your podium if you'd like. Oh, is that oh, That's yours. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so the people would bring animals to the altar, a sin offering. And what they would do, they showed me that night. Okay, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I have to say something first. They explained through the whole act, sacrificial system. An animal must die to pay for the sin of man. Not any animal. An animal without blemish, without spot. A perfect, holy offering for a perfect, holy God. 
He's a holy God who must punish sin. So if God were fair, and every one of us who breathe got what we deserve, we would be dead, separated from God, now and through all eternity. But then they said to me that night, God is not only a holy, just God who must punish sin, to be true to his nature, but that he's a loving God who created us for a relationship with himself. And that night, that changed my life forever, they told me how God in his love, without compromising his holiness, provided the way for us to come back into that relationship with him. And that's how he gave the sacrificial system to Israel. That they would bring perfect holy sacrifices to the altar. And they would put their hand, that one-year-old spotless male lamb, the sin offering, they put their hand on the head of the lamb. It was a symbolic gesture of the sin passing from them onto that lamb. And that lamb who was innocent symbolized by how perfect he was. That lamb who was innocent, but who symbolically had taken upon himself the sin of this person, was slain. And the blood of that lamb was shed on the altar as an offering to God in payment for this person's sin. And I listened to them and I said, why? Why would put in, God put an innocent animal to death for my sin? Put me to death. It made no sense to me. But it began to get through to me that sin is no light issue to God, that he would do that. And they explained to me with that, that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs through 1,500 years of that mosaic sacrificial system could never take away sin. There were a Kippur. Anybody know the highest holy day of the Jewish year is Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Yom in Hebrew is day, Kippur is covering. They were the day God covered sin. But he couldn't take it away. None of those animal sacrifices could take away sin. And they explained to me that night that the blood of one lamb or millions of lambs shed, millions and millions and millions of lambs shed over 1,500 years of that sacrificial system, particularly every Passover, millions shed and the blood used to pour down the hills of Jerusalem. Not one lamb, they said, or all of them together could take away sin. But every lamb and all of them together, they said, were a sign to point to the one who would one day come and take upon himself not the sin of a single individual temporarily for a time, because the people would go home and sin over and over again and bring sacrifices over and over again. Those sacrifices couldn't take away sin, nor could they perfect the worshiper. They had no power to change the heart at all. And they said to me, every lamb and all of them together were couldn't take away sin, but everyone was assigned to point to the one who would one day come and take upon himself not the sin of a single individual temporarily for a time, but the sin of every one man, woman, and child who ever lived for all time. And then they went to one verse in the New Testament, which maybe all of you know by heart, or at least you've read it, which I had never heard in my life before. It is when John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan, and Jesus came to him, and he said, looking at Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That verse, in that Hawaiian restaurant, shattered my life. I sat there. My whole body was shaking. I couldn't speak. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't believe what I had just heard. I thought to myself, sitting there, not able to speak, if one lamb, under the Old Testament sacrificial system, could take upon himself 
the sin of a single individual temporarily for a time, what then, here's a crucifix, could the blood of God's Son do on that cross? He, the Lamb of God, and our sins, the sins of the entire world, transferred to him. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Utterly, utterly blew me away. It was, it was as if, for me, it seemed that someone had put on a play and there had been a curtain with holes in it and all those months little shafts of light would come through some of the holes. When they said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it was as if someone pulled the curtain and exposed the stage. And I knew it happened. And I knew it was true. And my hang-up all this time, the greatest fear of the Jew, many Jews, a man can't be God. A man can't be God. And I realized that night a man can't be God. But if God exists, if God is, God could become a man. I'm not going to tell him how to be God. <laughs> I knew it was true. And even then, it took me a few months to work through fear and pride and whatever baggage I carried and give my life to that incomparable lamb. And I did. The night I gave my life to Christ in a fantastic evangelical church that I was led to, the pastor of whom and the staff I'll be grateful for the rest of my life. For me, to ask Jesus into my heart and give my life to him was jumping off a cliff. Either he's God and it'll be okay, I guess. I don't know how he does that. <laughs> or he's not, and I don't know what I'll do. But I gave him my whole life as I knew how then. It was my all then. You know how we give God our all, and then 10 years later we realize we didn't give very much then? But it was my all then. It was my all then. And I went home. And I didn't feel anything. There's no experience. And I went to sleep. And I woke up the next morning. And I opened my eyes lying in bed. And for the first time in my entire life, I said, good morning, Lord. And I knew he was God. And I knew I'd never be alone again. And I got dressed, and I went outside, and I looked at the hills. And the world was new. And the mountains and everything were new. And I was a new creation in him. And I walked through Los Angeles. And I, if I saw you, I said, excuse me. You know there's a God. You know you could know him. I said, I know weeks later, I said, Lord, that first ice cream cone together. Every single thing was new. And I jumped, my first Bible study was taught by an ex-Catholic who was taught by an ex-priest. So I learned about the Catholic Church from the horse's mouth. <laughs> the Catholic Church is Satan's system. It's the horror of Babylon. I don't think I'm shocking you, anybody there. <laughs> It's a man-made, false religious system leading millions astray, telling them they can work their way to heaven, therefore negating the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, all of that. So for the next 18 years, I try to save every Catholic, actually for the next 14 years. My brother David became, gave his life to Christ through a Baptist church a year after me. In fact, I called David when I gave my life to Christ, and I told him I was a Christian, and he had been searching, so he understood these things. He said, as I talked, he said, you sound like an evangelical. He said, I said, what's that? He said, actually, Raj, you sound like a fundamentalist. I said, what's that? I didn't know anything. I was a Christian. I didn't know denomination. What denomination? Jesus. Establishes church. I believed in Jesus. I was a Christian. I didn't have a clue about any of that. That's exactly what I was. 
And a year later, through that Baptist church, David gave his life to Christ, and we rejoiced. I was in California now. He's in New York. Five hours on the phone, we rejoiced. And on that phone conversation, he said to me, Rosalind, I believe Christ is God. He's the Messiah. He's God come to earth, died for our sins, rose from the dead. The Bible's God's word, inerrant, infallible, authoritative. Everything's good. He said, but something's wrong. David said, how could it be that so many good and godly men, and he's speaking now of Protestant pastors, who love God, who study the word of God in humility and sincerity with all the tools of hermeneutics, biblical interpretation. He said, how could it be that so many good and godly men come out with such different interpretations of scripture? 30 plus thousand denominations and in such crucial areas. One says you should be baptized, one says no, one says you can lose your salvation, one says no. David said, God is not the author of confusion. And he had already read our Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. David said, what human parent would give birth to a child and let the child fend for itself to figure out where it should get food or true food or who should teach it what? He said, God is much more perfect father than any human father could be. Would he make us his children, adopt us into his family, and leave us orphans to fend for ourselves to figure out where to get true food and who should teach us. David said, that makes no sense. So David went to find out. I've always worried about him all my life. <laughs> he went to find out if Jesus meant what he said, that he established a church, if it exists after 2,000 years, and if you could find it. Well, David met, started, his first conversion was to pro-life position. He met Catholics who knew their faith. That was phenomenon number one. <laughs> and he was studying with some, and he began to study with a monk. David, my brother, studying with a monk. I flew out from California to New York to rescue David from the monk. <laughs> <laughs> because I knew that the monk was an agent of Satan to leave my brother for my God. <laughs> and I met with David and the monk for two, three hours and to go to solve the whole problem of the Reformation. David was just sitting there doing, going like this, mm -hmm. watching us. And it was Christmas Eve, 1978. I had been a Christian two years. And David said, he was getting increasingly drawn to the Catholic Church. And Christmas Eve, Midnight Mass, he said, Roz, we're upstate New York. He said, I'm going to Midnight Mass. Do you want to come? And I wanted to go. I had never been in a Catholic Church in my life. I wanted to see what David's problem was. So I went to Midnight Mass. And we went upstate New York to this tiny little church it was snowing, such a postcard snowing, little slow-motion white fluffy flakes, <laughs> pitch black, except the church was lit, and gorgeous stained glass windows with the light coming through it. It was such a gorgeous scene, I got so angry. I said, it's just like Satan to make error look enticing. <laughs> <laughs> we sat in the church, and I saw people with the holy water crossing themselves and genuflecting, and I was sick to my stomach. And we sat through that mass, and we got out. I was in shock the entire time. We got out of the church, walking down the steps. David said, what would you think? He's all excited. I couldn't speak. I was in shock. The whole half-hour ride home. Until we got home, I couldn't speak. When I finally could speak, I said to him, David, that is a synagogue, David, but with Christ. <laughs> and he got all excited. He said, right, Roz, that's what the church is. That's wrong. That's wrong. Said, what is his problem? Does he have a hang-up from our Jewish background, the liturgy, the aesthetics? Doesn't he know Christ is the end to which all that pointed? Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew 5, 17, 
I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill. And somehow we translated fulfill, do away with. I don't know how we got there. <coughs> oh, it was awful. A year later, David was Catholic. I tried everything I could. <laughs> but he was Catholic. And my Christian friends would say, is your brother a Christian? I said, well, I thought he was, but he's Catholic now, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so for years, we tried to save each other. <laughs> and it was in the summer. I went off. I was jail chaplain, women's jail in California for 10 years. And I was about to go on staff with my um, just graduated Protestant seminary right here, Biola, Calvary Seminary in La Mirada. And I was about to go, summer of 1990, I, they let me out of jail, and I was going on staff with an evangelical church to head of women's ministries. And it was June 1990, I had it to myself, I went to visit David. Again, marathon conversations, back and forth. And that summer, he gave me a magazine, this rock magazine published by Catholic Answers, who's now my full-time employer. He said, Ross, it's an apologetics magazine, you might be interested. I said, Apologet you know what apologetics? Peter said, Sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense, meaning a re uh, apologia, meaning a reasoned explanation to everyone who asks you for the hope that's within you. Apologetics. Not just what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. And that's what this magazine was about. I said, Catholic apologetics, Catholics have a defense of their faith. I never met a Catholic who knew their faith. My pastor was an ex-Catholic, so was half the congregation. <laughs> Ex-Catholics. But there was something else that got me. I never knew that Catholics cared that anyone knew it. And I thought to myself, even if you think you have the truth, I know you're wrong because you're Catholic, but even if you think you have the truth, and the truth means your soul, and the truth means the souls of everyone alive on the face of the earth, how do you keep that to yourself? So I had my first measure of respect for any Catholic who would publish what they believed was the answer to the world's salvation. And I took the magazine back to California with me. I got a subscription. I thought I'd die because I have Catholic mail in my box. <laughs> and inside that magazine was a full-page advertisement, and it said, Presbyterian minister becomes Catholic. It's a certain troublemaker by the name of Scott Hahn. <laughs> you might know that name, but I had never heard of Scott Hahn. And I had never heard of such a thing. And I said to myself, I don't care what his title was. I don't care what he functioned as. He could not have had a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and then become Catholic. There's no way. His theology was strongly Calvinistic. And I was John Calvin on a church history panel. I love Calvin. I've read everything he's written. I got those tapes. Four hours I listened. And at the end of four hours, I knew Scott Hahn was wrong. But his last 15 minutes, he summed up his presentation, and he said this. For the one who will look into the claims of the Catholic Church, 2,000 years of church history, the church fathers, and such, he said, to that one will come, his words, a holy shock and a glorious amazement to find out that what he had been fighting and trying to save people from was, in fact, the church Christ established on earth 2,000 years ago. And holy shock are the only words to describe what went through me. I stood utterly paralyzed physically. Something went right through me and I stood paralyzed and I said, oh no, don't tell me there's any truth to this thing. For the second time in my life I stood paralyzed. The first was with those 12 troubled Jews with Jesus, blessed be God for that. When I realized 
that the unapproachable God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God who no man could look on and live, entered time and space, entered history, took on our flesh, and became man for our sake. This was the second. And I knew on the spot that if I did not look into the claims of the Catholic Church, the last thing I wanted to do on this earth, I'd be turning from God. And I, was, I said, a week away from going on staff at the Protestant Church, I went on staff, taught 500 women a week, and read at 1, 2, 3 in the morning everything I could find that was Catholic. I wouldn't dare tell a soul. <laughs> Until two years, I knew that I had, to look in, I had to leave everything and everyone and look into the Catholic Church, lest I be teaching against the Church Christ established on earth. I left everything. I, went to, I moved to New York. Before I left, I went to a Christian bookstore, Christian discount bookstore, some of you may know it, and I said, I want everything you've got about the Catholic Church, which to them translates against the Catholic Church. And I walked out of it with $200 worth of Protestant books, tapes, everything. I desperately wanted to be rescued from ever becoming Catholic. And I went to New York, and I poured through those things for not even six months, and I was desperately and utterly alone because I needed those Protestant authors and pastors to rescue me from becoming Catholic. And what it turned out to be is they were fighting a straw man. They weren't fighting the Catholic Church. It's a statement that Bishop Fulton Sheen made, maybe some of you heard. He said that there's not a hundred people in America who hate the Catholic Church, but there are millions who hate what they mistakenly think the Catholic Church teaches. That was me. And those were the people who taught me. And these people were fighting a straw man. They were fighting their misconception. They were arguing against Catholics worshiping Mary. Nah, I had already read too much. To under I understood those were not Catholic teachings. So I put those books away. And for the next two years, poured into every single thing that was Catholic. And I began to discover a church to my utter shock. More magnificent more whole, more beautiful than I ever could have imagined. My favorite book was Carl Adams, Spirit of Catholicism. He wrote of the 13th century Catholicism, prior to the Reformation, when Europe was Catholic. And he wrote of, of the Angelus at noon, where the bells rang, and everybody stopped and went on their knees. Could you imagine a world like today? That today? Supermarkets, Nordstrom's, <laughs> Hollywood streets, people in their homes, schools, everybody stopping and praying the angels. Could you even imagine such a thing? And they didn't need fellowship when they went to church <laughs> because the family was intact. And they had community, and they had extended family, and their entire life was fed through the grid of their faith. Arts and art and culture and science and math and school and everything was fed through their faith. So when they went to church on Sunday, the church went to church on Sunday not to see one another. They had life together, but to worship Christ, who was, they believed, truly present. I believe that now, too, in the Blessed Sacrament. And I said, where is that church? And for a year and a half, I visited every Catholic church within two hours from my home in New York that I could visit. And every Sunday, I came home in tears. I said, that's not the church I'm reading about. That doesn't have the beauty I'm reading about. That doesn't have 
all that I'm reading about. Something is wrong. And I realize now what I didn't then. Number one, I didn't understand the literature yet. And I thought this. If you were Jewish, when, and you lived when Jesus walked the earth, or I was, and lived then, and I had a Jewish friend, and I believed who Jesus was, and I said to my Jewish friend, see that man over there? That's God. My Jewish friend would say, what do you have for lunch? It's not God, it's a man. You're an ordering man. Just, you know, on the cross, Isaiah wrote, he had no company, says, we should even desire He's just God. He doesn't look like God. The church is his body. We don't always look like him also. Quite more. Quite more. But I didn't understand all that then. And what I know now, that no matter what we look like, no matter what happens, no matter the priest scandal, no matter the worst scandal in 2,000 years, no matter the sin, no matter anything, what I know now that I didn't know then, is that the church is perfect. I know, it sounds crazy. The church is absolutely holy. It's absolutely perfect. Because the church is Christ. As a Protestant, I believe that's a nice metaphor. He's the head, we're the members, the body. No. Truly Christ. We are truly his body. And Christ is God. And he can only be. We need to do a better job of becoming what we are, that's for sure. But I didn't understand all that then. And I looked into every single subject that separates Protestants from Catholics and that separated me from the Catholic Church because I considered the real possibility that I was looking into Satan's system. Scary. Very scary. And I, everything was answered for me. Mary, people say, do you have a problem with Mary? <coughs> I could... Well, doctor, I had a problem emotionally with Mary, but doctrinally, I had no problem. I had answered all the questions. Now I tell people, don't worry about Mary. She's a Jewish mother. She'd say, do I have a son for you? <laughs> <laughs> You're never going to meet a Jewish mother that doesn't want you to know her son. She's a one-track mind. That's all she does with everybody. That's all she does. Nothing else, people say. But she's going to come in the way. She's going to... So, you know, I went to Jesus for all these years. Now I have to go backwards and go through Mary. But the fact is, she's the shortest, quickest route to Christ-likeness there is by following her example. She's a mother. She wants you to get to her son. She knows all the shortcuts. No problem. So I had answered all those things. But there were two things at the last. The Mass and the Eucharist. All right, so now we're there. <laughs> Actually... I'll put it another way. The sacramental nature of the church and the Mass. Because I couldn't get to the Eucharist before I could get to the sacramental nature of the church. Because I had been brought up under a, ver under a very Calvinistic theology of total depravity. So, Barbara, when you're talking about rational faith, that <coughs> word is anathema. Because who trusts the mind? Our minds are full of rational? No. It's the only thing we trust. Mm -hmm. The fact that we each come up with a different interpretation because we use our mind, that doesn't enter into it. Right? So that's scary. We don't use our mind. Of course we use our mind, but it's fallen. So 
why would God use things? Why I began? Why would God use fallen? You know, you know what sacraments are already. They are visible signs of God's <coughs> invisible grace. Visible signs instituted by Christ, not man-made, to give grace, which is the very life of God in our souls. So, baptism as an evangelical, I believe, was necessary, not for salvation, because God didn't do anything through it, the water, the water got you wet. But somehow we're commanded to be baptized. So we do that in obedience to God, and, and this is good. But God doesn't do anything. And I began to, to, to look into all that and say to myself, well, if, if matter means nothing, then why did Jesus take mud and spit to cure the blind man? He didn't need to do that. He didn't always cure blind men that way. Why did he take fallen, corrupt matter? He didn't need to do that. Why did he change water to wine when they ran out of wine in Canaan? He could have said poof and made wine. He didn't need to say poof. He spoke and the world's came, worlds came into being. He creates by his very word. Why did he use matter? Why did he take on human flesh? Why? And I began to realize God said all he made was good. Matter is neutral. <coughs> it's neutral. It's our use of it that determines whether it's good or not. And I began to understand that through the cross, Jesus would take us and his whole creation and reconcile all things to himself to be restored to the purpose and dignity for which he made all things. And I began to learn that all the sacraments give grace. So sacraments are a sign, but they differ from what I understood in my evangelical years because they do what the sign symbolizes. So water, I figured, ah, gets you wet. But water is a sign of cleansing. And God does what the sign says. So as we go through the waters of baptism, does water do anything? Water gets you wet. But as we obey through baptism, God does what the water signifies and cleanses us from sin. All the sacraments that way. Confession. I absolve you, says the priest. But Jesus is the one that forgives sins. How can a man forgive my sins? Well, he can't. God alone forgives sins. But who am I to tell God how he'll forgive sins? And when the priest says, I absolve you, it's Jesus who says that through the priest. It's God who forgives sins, but through the sacraments that he has instituted to bring us to heaven. When I get there, we can ask him why he did say things a certain way. All the sacraments give grace. Again, the life of God in our souls. All the sacraments give grace. But the Eucharist is another matter. Because the Eucharist doesn't merely give us grace. The Eucharist is Christ. So the Catholic Church believes. So one day I went to a priest, and I said to him, took me forever to go to a priest, because when you taught the church of Satan's system, you're going to trust the priest. I finally said to him, okay, we evangelicals, we have Christ, you know. He's the indwelling Christ. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I said, do you Catholics go to church on Sunday and get Christ? Then do you lose him during the week? And you go back the next Sunday and you get him again? 
How do you get him if you have him? If he's the indwelling Christ, does God come in parts? And this priest in New York said, no, Roz. We have Christ, us Catholics. We have the indwelling Trinity. And yes, he said, yes, he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But he said, as in a marriage, a husband and wife have each other. They love each other all the time. But sometimes they go about their mundane chores in life and they're not so aware of that love. He said, but in the intimacy of the marital union, it is the beloved giving to his beloved, the bridegroom giving to his bride himself in a total act of self-giving love that is unique to that time. He said, that's the Eucharist. We have Christ all the time. He lives within us all the time. But sometimes we go about our mundane chores in life and we're not so aware of that life in us. But in the Eucharist, he said, it is the beloved giving to his beloved. The bridegroom Christ giving to his bride, the church, himself, in a total act of self-giving love, intimacy, that is unique to that time. I'd never heard anything more beautiful. I said to him, okay, one more thing then. I have been taught for all my evangelical years that Catholics re-sacrifice Christ at every Mass. And my pastor would hold up the Bible, little sinner who missed by seven books. <laughs> he would hold it up. Don't those Catholics know that the book of Hebrews says Christ was sacrificed once for all? Well, I came to find out, looking into the Catholic Church, the Catholics had never taught anything other and that they wrote the book. Martin Luther said we wouldn't have the Bible for one for the Catholic Church. I had already come to understand that the Mass is not the re-sacrifice of Christ, or we talked about the atonement being brought through time. It's not the re-sacrifice of Christ. It's the re-presentation of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ that happened in time 2,000 years ago on Calvary. Once for all he died. But is it, it that once for all sacrifice that occurred in time is an eternal sacrifice that exists also outside of time because God is outside of time. And the book of Revelation talks about the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And what God did with that once for all sacrifice was to bring that eternal sacrifice that occurred in time but also exists outside of time. Go figure. We'll find that out when we get to heaven. The pieces will come together. He brings that once for all sacrifice, never to be re-sacrificed, ever, through time and down onto the altar at the words of consecration of the priest, down on the altar of every Catholic church, that Calvary is not re-sacrificed but represented Calvary brought through time and made present on the altar. It sounds crazy. It sounds supernatural, but that's exactly what it is. When the priest holds up bread, wheat and water, wine, fruit of the vine, that's what it is. And when the priest says over bread, this is my body, it's the same as when he says I absolve you. 
if we could see with our eyes what our faith would understand, we wouldn't see the priest because he doesn't exist at that moment. It is Christ who says, this is my body, through the priest. <coughs> and when Jesus, when Christ said, let there be light, there was. And when he says, this is my body, bread obeys. St. Augustine said, or Augustine said, our Lord held himself at the Last Supper with his own hands. He said, this is my body and bread obeyed and became the very body and blood of Christ. Bread becomes God. You could say God becomes bread. But he doesn't become bread. Bread is transubstantiated into the very body, blood, soul, and divinity. What is body, blood, soul, and divinity means? Made 100% man, 100% God. He's God. He could be 200%. <laughs> hmm. Under the appearance, what we call the accidents of bread and wine. So it still looks like bread. It still looks like wine. It still tastes like bread and tastes like wine. Those are the accidents. Maybe if God, <coughs> instead of keeping the appearance bread and wine, it's no longer bread and wine. He's not in the bread and wine. It is no longer bread and wine. Luther believed in consubstantiation, that God is with the bread and with the wine. No. Through the priest, bread and wine is changed into God. <coughs> but still under the appearance of bread and wine. I think if God had given us himself under the appearance of flesh and blood, we'd have a hard time receiving communion. He accommodates our humanity in giving himself to us. Um, I, I, I love to connect it too to the mystery of the incarnation itself because one of the things that I find is so interesting is when people tell me they can't believe in the Eucharist, but I'm like, well, to me... Jesus becoming bread is a less mystery than God becoming man. <laughs> but um, So if you believe that, that the man still just looked like a man, but he was now, but he is God. In, in the same way, now you have the bread and wine just look like that, but it's more. You know? So to me, to me that the, big, the big jump for us faith-wise is to the incarnation. And yes. and once you've made that jump and you believe that it was that that God as you said and I love I love listening to Jewish people talk about God because we've lost an aspect in our familiarity of the sovereignty the 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 awesomeness of with this, to not say the name you know but to believe that that mystery becomes this stuff is to me the much bigger jump it is yeah and in fact I heard a priest once say that it was an infinite act of course that God would take on flesh. God is not a man, he's a spirit. Would take on flesh and become man. It was almost, in comparison, a finite move that he would then take on a flesh. The unbelievable condescension of a God who not only became man for us, but then became man for us. And I thought of Solomon at that point, for me. Oh, let me tell you one more thing. We have time. And I want to tell you, go back to the Mass. But let me tell you the thing that did it for me on the Eucharist. I was reading through John chapter 6. And as a Protestant, John chapter 6, I am the bread of life chapter. Jesus had just said the first, the 5,000. <coughs> and they went after him. Ter terrific, free food. 
He said, don't go after me for free food. Don't go after me for the food that perishes, the food that um, leads to eternal life. Yes, but not for the food that perishes. So Jesus said, let me just read a passage here, because this did it for me. It, it, it was a huge eye-opener. Jesus said, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him has God the Father set his seal. Jesus just said to those Jews, I am the Messiah. We don't know that, but they knew it. Son of Man was his messianic title from the prophets, particularly Daniel. He just told them he was the Messiah, and they understood what he told them. So they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? You're the Messiah. Tell us what to do. Jesus said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. We read it so easily, but it's unbelievable. This is the work of God, Jesus said to the Jews, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's annoying. So they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Come on, what are you claiming? What work do you perform, Jesus? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Can you top that one? The man in the desert? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. But when he said, I am, he used God's covenant name, the name he revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. Who am I going to say sent me? I am. What's your name? I am. I always picture Moses saying, that's a name. What kind of a name is that? I am. I'm existence. I always was. I always will. I am. That's my name. Go tell him I am sent you. What kind of a... Jesus used that claim to be the I am. I am. He just made himself out to be God. This is the first of the seven I am's of the Gospel of John. The, the Gospel among so all Gospels that shows the deity of Christ. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection of life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the light of the world. Light of the world. Light of the world. Yeah. Seven of them. Every time he claimed to be God. And the Jews took up stones to stone him. He said, what are you stoning me? What have I done that you stoned me? They said, not because of anything you've done, but because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. How did he do that? By claiming to be <coughs> God through I am. And they murmured at him, isn't this, isn't this the son of Joseph? How could he say he came down from heaven? Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Is this a mere man? And Jesus said, don't argue among yourselves. No one's seen the Father except him who is from God. I'm skipping. He's seen the Father. Truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. <coughs> that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. When I first read that as an evangelical, I said, my goodness, my goodness. The Jews had problems with that. They disputed it. How could this man give us his flesh to eat? I didn't understand why they were having so much trouble. I knew Jesus didn't mean what he said. <laughs> my Protestant pastor told me that to begin with. He didn't mean what he said. It's symbolic. Plus, 
Here's the one claiming to be the fulfillment of the law, going seemingly going yes with the law taught. The law taught in Leviticus, if anyone eats flesh of an animal, drinks his blood, he'll be cut off from the people. That can't be. So why are they having a problem? Why are they believing what he says? He's only talking symbolically. I'm spiritual food. Feed on me. So I went on. And I know, first time I read as an evangelical, never forget, I got a little... I said, come on, what's your, why are you taking him seriously? He's going to clear it up. Because when they had misunderstood him before, he used to clear it up. So I'm waiting for him to clear it up. Here's how he clears it up. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And I read that, and I remember my first time in John 6, I got so nervous, I got angry at Jesus. I said, they're not going to know you don't mean what you say if you keep saying that. <laughs> you got to clear it up. I was getting very nervous. And he went on. My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And looking into the Catholic Church, I read Protestant and Catholic scholars who both believe that the beginning of John 6, I'm the bread of life, you could take that metaphorically, but here you cannot. Both Protestant and Catholic scholars agree that the language changes to the literal, physical, graphic language of eating and chewing and munching. There's no mistake of it. And he goes on, he eats my flesh, drinks my blood, abides with me, and I and him is the... F oh, on, 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 on. He says it over and over and over again. And I said, you know, what's that got to do with the Lord's Supper? I never heard anything about John 6 to do with the Lord's Supper and the Eucharist. I'm going to go where I know Jesus is the Lord's Supper. And I could have gone to any of the other Gospels, but I went to Matthew, which is the Gospel written mostly to the Jews to show them Jesus the Messiah. So, okay. They're sitting at the Last Supper. It's a Passover. What had they done? They would have gotten a lamb for the Passover. A male, one year old, without blemish, without spot, under the law of Moses. They would have taken the lamb to the altar, the priest. They would have put their hand on the lamb. It would have been symbolic of the sin passing through them to the lamb. The lamb would be slain and the blood would be drained. Because you can't eat the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And you take the lamb home, drained of its blood, and you have to consume it that night. Exodus 12. You have to eat the lamb that night. And as you're sitting at the Last Supper, Jesus took bread, Matthew 26, and blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And for the first, I, I can almost recite that without reading it in my evangelical years. And for the first time, I said to myself, why did Jesus just do what he did? Why did he take bread, would be matzah, the unleavened bread of the Passover table, and break it and bless it? Why did he do that? The matzah... He said, this is my body. The bread was symbolic of him. But wait a minute. They had a lamb on the table. If anything was symbolic of him, it would be the lamb. Why didn't he pick up a piece of meat and say, this is my body, if it's symbolic of him? Why bread? That made no sense at all. And then I thought back to John 6. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. Wait, 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 wait. 
The manna from the Old Testament is a sign that points to the matzah unleavened bread that points to Jesus. But all of a sudden that made no sense. Why? Every single thing in the Old Testament is a shadow of the reality to come. Apostle Paul says, a shadow of the reality to come. The reality is always greater than the sign. So Molly and I came here today, 50 miles to Hollywood. When you get to Hollywood, it's greater than the sign. Otherwise, why go there? We didn't need the sign anymore once we got to Hollywood. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ who is its fulfillment. Every feast of the Jews, every piece of furniture in the old in the tabernacle, every theme of every book, everything points to Christ who is the fulfillment of the reality to come, of every sign. I thought to myself for the first time, this is the only exception. That the man of the Old Testament doesn't point to Christ. It's the only exception. In my evangelical it points to a piece of matzah that points to Christ. And all of a sudden, how could that ever make sense? Because the man of the Old Testament was miraculous. Remember, God <coughs> fed them from heaven. It was angels' food cake. He fed the Israelites 40 years in the wilderness. It was a miraculous sign. Would a miraculous sign point to an inferior piece of matzah? Why go there? <laughs> the reality has to be greater than the sign. But if the man points to Christ, that is in keeping with every old, with every other prophecy and fulfillment and shadow. But how could it be? And I was taught to read scripture in context. We won't go there now. So I went back to the beginning of John chapter 6, verse 4, says the Passover the Jews were at hand. It was all in context. How could it be? How could a wafer contain God? I said to myself, how could it be God? And then I thought of Solomon building the temple for, temple for his father David. And he finished the temple and he said, oh, Lord God, the heaven of heavens can't contain thee. How much less this house that I built? Can, can a temple, can, can the heavens contain God? Away from, no. Is anything impossible for him? Such utter condescending love to give himself for us on Calvary and then to us as our food. Unbelievable. Okay, I have one problem. The mass. That's where Calvary is represented, made present. God comes down and changes bread into his body, into his body and blood, and wine into his body and blood. Each species, the wine or the bread, become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you receive one speck of wine, you have the whole Christ. And I would listen as the priest would say, we join our sacrifices with the sacrifice of Christ. We've all been made to a mass, the end of the mass, through him, with him, and in him. And I sat back in that parish, and I screamed inside, wait a minute, wait a minute. We join our sacrifices to the sacrifice of Christ. Don't you Catholics believe that Christ died once for all for the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future? If Catholics, if I add my sacrifices to the sacrifice of Christ, I reasoned, then you're, aren't you saying his sacrifice wasn't sufficient? I have to add to it? If you Catholics don't believe the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient for the sins of all men, women, and children of all time, goodbye Catholic Church. And for a year I asked every Catholic, is the sacrifice of Christ sufficient? They said yes. I said, do you add to it? They said no. Because they wanted me to believe that the Church believes it was sufficient. 
But that's not the language of the Mass. <coughs> Through him, with him, and in him, we add our sacrifices to sacrifice. Wait a minute. I finally went to this dear priest that helped me to the church. I said to him, do you add to the sacrifice of Christ? And he looked at me. He said, yes, we do, Ross. Yes, his sacrifice was sufficient. No, we don't need, no, he doesn't need our addition. Yes, we add to it. My first response, I've been rescued from ever becoming Catholic. I really appreciate that. But it took, after my first response, about 10 seconds, sitting before that holy priest, for what he had just said, to become, I think, the most beautiful thing I've ever heard outside of the death and resurrection of Christ for me. Years before this, just last thing I want to tell you, this made me Catholic. I had taken a course on the the life of Christ. We were up to the point where Mary was washing Jesus' feet with her hair at the table. And the professor then said to us that our ability to love is in part measured by our ability to receive because when we receive, no, when we love, we're giving, we're in control. To receive could be awkward, humbling, we're not so in control. And he said Jesus received as freely as he gave as Mary washed his feet. And I knew back then, years ago, in my Protestant world, I didn't love like that. I don't love like that now. And I thought to myself, I put him to death. I did. My sins put him on the cross. Would he now receive me into the very sacrifice that I caused? And I thought of my mother in the kitchen baking a chocolate cake. <coughs> She's got all the ingredients. She's sufficient for the task. She needs nothing. She needs no one. Into the kitchen comes her three-year-old daughter. Mommy, can I help you? What does love do? Love receives. Sure, honey. So the little one comes and throws in an egg, flour, stuff. Did the mother need her help? No. Was the mother sufficient? Yes. Was it a true addition? couple of my favorite Protestant songs of Jesus, Lead Me Near the Cross, or what Billy Graham made famous, O Lamb of God, I come to thee. I thought this. <coughs> I put him to death. My sins did. But if I could go back, now that I love him, by his grace, 2,000 years ago, and be at the foot of Calvary 2,000 years ago, as our blessed mother was, whereas I yelled, in effect, crucify him with that cross. But now that by his grace he's brought me to love him, I can be a Catholic and crawl up on the cross and give myself to him who is giving himself for me. Would I not want to do that? I thought I would. And then I realized, and it blew me away, that's the mass. Unbelievable. That we, in effect, every one of us, yelled crucify him. He died for the sins of the world. He died for all of our sins. But now that by his grace he's brought us to love him, we don't go back 2,000 years to Calvary. 2,000 years Calvary is brought to us through time, down on the made present in every mass. And whereas, in effect, we yell crucify him, but now that by his grace he's brought us to love him, we can crawl up on the cross at Calvary made present and give ourselves through him, with him, and in him to the Father. What manner of love is that? 
We couldn't have been it utterly, utterly consumed me. It still does. Maybe we can. I just want to tell you the greeting I got when I came into the church. Because I was working for an Italian restaurant in New York so I could pay rent and study. They were all Catholic because they were Italian. <laughs> Practicing Catholics. I came to the restaurant and told them I was Catholic. They, one of them said, you got to be kidding. I thought you were so intelligent. You knew what you were doing and you became Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> Another said, why do you keep changing your religion? <laughs> Another said, oh, Ross, come on. You had so much freedom and everything. As an evangelical, why would you submit yourself to that ancient patriarchal church full of rules and do's and don'ts run by a bunch of old men in Rome. Why would you do that? And this particular woman had left the Catholic Church and was going to Faith Bible Church upstate New York. And I had one question for her, as I've had for every Catholic I've met who's left the church since. When you were Catholic, did you believe that the Eucharist was Christ? Body, blood, soul, and divinity. 100% man, 100% God, as he was, as he walked on the earth, as he held the world together from the manger, because he never ceased being God, the God who created you. Did you understand? Did you believe the Eucharist was him? She said, I never understood that. I said, this is another matter. Fellowship, Bible study, all of that is good, and it should be in its right context. But they are all to the end that we have him. We have him in the Catholic Church, truly present. Love came near. Would you leave him for those things? You know? Remember Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God, and he, who, he it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me, we would have given you living water. And I say to the one who doubts, if you knew the gift of God, and he who is... He it is who says, this is my body, you ask him to give you Ross? Yes. I think we need to, um, because we are getting on time. Okay, so questions? Questions. Sure, um, go ahead. No. And, and you know what, don't, um, let's hear it. Yeah, you know, anything. Yeah. But come on, I'm from Brooklyn, I'm tough, I can yeah. do anything you <laughs> Not that I can answer. If I can't answer, I'll call on you. <coughs> I was just thinking about the, and maybe you addressed this when I ran upstairs, but the, uh, when St. Paul says uh, we make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Yeah, Colossians 1.24. Right. And, and I've always taken that to mean that uh, that Christ's sufferings are sufficient for our salvation, certainly. But we can participate in in that because that's that's God's that's God's side and, and <coughs> as human beings as you were uh, talking about the little child uh, with the mother that we can, we can actively participate or actively respond to the salvation that, that Christ uh, has won for us. Yes, him. Father. Yeah, especially the Yes, it's so magnificent because when you love someone, you want to share in their life. And that's we, we read the scriptures, Paul saying, I share, I, we, we have partake in the sufferings of Christ. We are sharers in sufferings. But that doesn't come 
to full reality until I came to the Catholic Church, that we could, we are truly his body. And there was nothing lacking in his sacrifice, but people are still getting at him through us. And we can actually share in his sufferings. We share in his very, very life, in every way, in every way. I don't think I understood when you were talking about the lamp. Why wasn't the lamb on the table at Passover? And why, why was it the bread and not the lamb? Yes. So the lamb for the Last Supper, where Jesus instituted the Eucharist and the priesthood, by the way. Um, <coughs> I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. He didn't do away with Israel's priesthood. It was fulfilled in him who is the high priest. That's another subject. Um, so there's the lamb on the table, but they had the unleavened bread, the matzah, and it was the matzah he picked up, the unleavened bread, and said, not over the meat, but over the bread, this is my body. And bread became Christ at his word, at his command, this is my body at the Last Supper, before his death and resurrection. But bread obeyed and became his body. And he said at that point to, to his disciples, who became the first priests, do this. That's how he instituted the priesthood of the new covenant in his blood. Do this in remembrance of me. What I've just done, take bread. What I've just done, take bread. Pronounce over the bread these words that I've given you. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of what? In remembrance of his death for us that he would undergo and in remembrance of his coming again. Full salvation history. And, and also, isn't it the symbol thing that, that if it was just a symbol, the, the, the Lord's Supper, which is what, you know, that's the division in Christendom, right? Then he would have just said, the this is my body, the lamb, because that's the better symbol. Right. I, I think that's the, that was where you were... What you were right, right. And, and if he, he could have used the lamb, mm -hmm. but... Then at Catholic Mass, we'd have a lot of meat. It didn't work so well. But the fact is that in preparation for that, he fed them the manna in the wilderness. So the manna was the bread from heaven that pointed to the one who would be the true bread from heaven. So he took bread, and that became his body and blood. So at the Mass, not the meat, could have used me, but he didn't. Manna became their physical sustenance, though provided in a miraculous way. And so it would be fulfilled in the New Testament as our spiritual sustenance, fulfilled also in a miraculous way. Truly become the God who provided the manna for the Israelites. Now himself became their bread. Himself became their This is your Fine. chance. You don't believe it. Do we really believe we're chewing on his body? It's oh, it's, it's, you know something? It's, how, what, it, it's, Barbara said it before. Tell, go tell the Jew that God became man. Forget it. Forget it. God is not going to take on flesh. He's not a man. That is the bigger mystery. That is the mystery of the ages. Not the Eucharist. The incarnation is everything. But once God could take on flesh, 
Could he not become our food? See, nothing's impossible for him. But for the Jew, don't even speak of the Eucharist. It's the incarnation. He can't even fathom that, that God would take on flesh. Um, can I say a, a word, too, about the, the dogma? And, um, you know, she mentioned transubstantiation. And this is a, a term that St. Thomas borrowed from Greek philosophy. Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, yes. And, um, and the, the idea is that things have a substance, an essence. And that that's, like, for example, if you cut my hair here, you know, this, this is, it doesn't touch my substance. I'm still me. My substance is somehow knit to this body of mine, but, but it's, a, it's mysterious, you know, what makes me me, my core. And so the mystery transubstantiation is that, that God, what we believe happens on the altar is that the substance of Christ replaces the substance of the bread, the thing that makes the bread bread. And the fact that the bread mm -hmm. doesn't look like Jesus looked when he walked on the earth is means nothing because mm -hmm. God doesn't look like Jesus. Yeah. God is right. spirit. Right. But he became man for us yeah. to look like one of us. Yeah. So it's the, that's when we say it's the whole body of Christ, it's the substance, the core, the essence yes, of the body yes. of Christ. That's what we're talking about. And so, so no, it doesn't taste like flesh. You know, it, it preserves the accident. We call it the accidents. Yeah. This is the accidents. Clip, clip, clip. You know, my hair is brown. It's an accident. Um, that's why um, I had a theology professor who said it's possible to get drunk by accident hmm. at the Eucharist, right? Because the accidents of wine are are remaining. You know, meaning yeah, the properties, but yeah. but the substance. The substance has been Christ. switched. Yeah, very very not easy. And and I also want to add too, Roz, if I, I'll I'm recommend for yeah. you a couple of books if you wish. Right. I'll tell you what did it for me. Yeah. Um, I also want to say that that um, for me. Um, one of the things that made, you know, I was a nun for nine years. We had two hours of Eucharistic adoration every day. And the day that really I became Catholic, having been a Catholic my whole life, was the day when I realized that the Eucharist was as much about Jesus as about me. And by that I mean um, he, he instituted the Eucharist, yes, to pump us back with the divine life that, you know, we had been cut off from, right? But because he wanted to touch me. Like, he had come here, he had had a body, he had touched us, he'd been in our midst, and then he was going to go. And he wasn't going to do that. You know, he wasn't going to not have a physical relationship with us, I think, at that, you know, like, and because he's Some God. Some people say, well, but if we could have only walked with Jesus when he walked on the earth like right. the disciples did, the fact is, the disciples didn't have him living anywhere yeah. as we do. Yeah. So that, that idea of go to communion because Jesus wants to touch you. He wants to be in you. He wants to, wants to, he wants to feed you physically, spiritually, emotionally, morally, socially, all those things. But that, like if you think of it that way, it's not like you are so much having, you know, I think sometimes we approach this sacrament like we're having to do all the work and everything like that. And it's like, no, you know, St. Teresa, the little flower, says Jesus became bread so that he could blend with human hearts and like that's that's the cool thing about it it's like do it for him you know like let, let him have that connection to you and so anyway yeah oh no i was just going to add that and and i i liked your an analogy of you know i mean really it's the reality it's not just analogy it's the reality of that of how god and, and what you're saying barbara it's that intimate moment when we receive Jesus, it, it is. It's like uh, 
it's the bridegroom and the bride <laughs> coming together. For, really, it's like a marital act, if you will. But but also what it does is the reality of, of it, it's, it's a point of conversion. Every time we come there, it draws us to conversion because think of what you're doing. You're about ready to receive the creator of heaven and earth, either on your tongue or on your hand, and you need that pure mind and pure heart. So it, 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 it really it forces you, if you will, to examine yourself and to, and, and to make sure that when you're going up there, you know, where am I in my relationship with God? Um, but also, you know, in that, in that uh, love act that God is presenting to us, you know, we look at that host, and it, it becomes a big obstacle for a lot of Catholics, you know, that have been in the church for a long time, and still they don't really, is, is it really sinking in, and that's the, is that the body and blood of Christ? But what does it take? It takes faith. And um, in all love, in all love stories, right, there's a mystery, and and that's and that's what it's doing too. Is it's it's God is a, is being presented to us as a mystery that we will never ever really figure out. But that mystery draws us into this intimacy of love with Him, and um, and so that's why when we look upon that host, you know we, you know it's it's um, it's it's always going to take faith. I want to tell you something in case anyone is having or has this experience. I came to believe the Catholic Church is true, and so I entered the church, the East Vigil of 1995. I don't know if I should tell you this, but I've started, and I will. From the time I entered the church, three solid years after that, from the day I entered, for three solid years, I'm just going to tell you this little, not to discourage you, I thought I'd never love God again. There was no sign of God. I learned later about dark nights of the soul and all of that. I had no clue. Dark night of the senses. Three solid years, I thought I'd never love God again. And I went, never missed a day at Mass. Never missed a day receiving the Eucharist. Never. Three years. I thought I was false. I thought the church was false. But I hang on, hung on to what I knew. And after three years, God restored the sense of his presence to me again. What I learned through that time is that God, if we tend to function on our emotions, which in general women do more than men, but it's not exclusive to women and all of that, um, then God will take, will remove consolations or perhaps the sense of his presence from us that our faith would take deep root and we don't live on experience and we don't use our emotions <coughs> as the barometer of our spirituality. Um, if we tend to function by our intellect alone and not pay much attention to our emotions, God will give us emotional experiences. I'm the emotional one in the family. David is the intellect and doesn't trust his emotions, gives him no room. I read my way into the church. David had an experience. A miracle God gave him and it made him Catholic. So what I, sa what I say is that his father's saying, one of the ways I know that Catholicism is a fulfillment of Judaism is because when I grew up and I'd say, Ma, why do we do this? Why do we do that? She's a Jewish mother. She'd say, don't ask. So I didn't know. And I come into the church and I said to the priest who received me, well, how come this? How come that? Every once in a while he'd say, it's a mystery. I'd say, well, forget that. That's just the way of, another way of saying don't ask. It's the fulfillment of Judaism, I tell you. <laughs> but it is a mystery. We're finite beings. Can the cup understand the potter who made it? No. No. But God has given us a mind to reason. 
And he says, come, let us reason together, and he wants us to reason and understand. But God will always be, we will always be the creature, he will always be the creator, and we're never going to be able to figure everything out. And I want to tell you, as an evangelical Protestant, God was in my box. I didn't know I had one, but I could get my arms around him. Now I'm Catholic. Again. God is in his rightful place again. And what I have restored to me is the reverence, the awe, the majesty I knew as a child missing. God's in his right place again. Only he who became in flesh became our food. And even though I spent the first three years that way, I just can't even tell you what he's done. Father speaks of conversion. In my Protestant years, conversion once for everything. Once forever happening with ongoing effects. No. Yes, faith is a gift, but conversion is ongoing till the day we go to heaven. God will continue to enlarge our hearts of understanding and of love for him. And no matter how puzzling things may be to you now or at any point, he will never, ever abandon or forsake the heart that seeks him. Never. Would you like a couple of, if you wish, I, I, mean, I know I'm time is we, we kind of have to stop. Do you want me to recommend a couple of books on the Eucharist? <coughs> <coughs> Anybody? Sure. You can yeah. just write them down if you wish. Uh, I'm going to give you three that help me. One, the simplest, tiniest book, um, I don't, I think it's 90, <coughs> little tiny pocketbook is called This Is My Body. That's it. This Is My Body. The author is Mark Shea, S-H-E-A. Evangelical convert to the Catholic Church. Big blogger, Catholic, and enjoying it. Anyway, he's one of the main oh, Catholic bloggers. Oh, there blogs. you go. Yeah, that's right. right. He's outstanding. Yeah. And um, this is my body, Mark Shea, S-H-E-A. And it's a thorough scriptural presentation of the Eucharist. Very good. The second, that was the first book that helped me. The second book that helped me, as I think the title is Simply Holy Eucharist, uh, by Father Aiden Nichols, A-I-D-E-N Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S. I mean, different things helped different folks, but that helped me. And the third book that helped me um, is written, um, is called The Hidden Manna. That's what the Eucharist is called in Revelation chapter 2. The Hidden Manna. And it's written by Father Monsignor Willie James T. O'Connor, published by Ignatius Press. He's actually the priest that received me into the church. And what it is, is a, a chronological, let's say, chronological theology of the Eucharist. So what it does is take you from the formation of the church, the whole development of the understanding of the Eucharist through the ages. And you'll see that it wasn't even questioned in the 12th century. It wasn't even questioned that it was the body and blood of Christ. The disciples themselves wrote the Didache in the first century spoke about the Mass. Cardinal John Henry Cardinal Newman said to dig deep into history is to cease to be Protestant. <laughs> it was, I was finished. <laughs> All I had to do was read the Church Fathers, past what our Church Fathers were the Reformers, <coughs> Lutheran, Calvin, and Zwingli, go back 2,000 years. Early Church Fathers by um, William Jurgens is a three-volume set, if you want to Really did in there. Very good. Rosalind, we have to stop. Yes, but, I know. But as I said, um, we'll go to lunch next door if thank you'd you like to come, and you'd be most welcome. But um, I want to thank you very much thank for. You. Um, <laughs>
www.climatechatchdancerscatholic.com. If ever I can help anybody personally or you want, just give me a hollow to Okay, everybody, thanks a lot. Um, now we will, um, if you think of more questions, you know, obviously bring them to the table as we go ahead. And um, we we kind of jumped ahead by this class. We should have done the church sacraments and then the Eucharist, but it was a matter of getting schedules together, and we just really wanted to work Rosalind in, and I also thought it would be neat to start the second half with a, with a, a wonderful guest. So having said that, um, I'm not sure ne next week, do you know it? Um, is it probably did come to the church. But, um, so let's... Um, um, yeah, good question. Yeah, um, it's a little tricky, um, but uh, can I can we address that next week, Father? Is that possible? Um, okay. I want to talk to them about yeah, it. It's, oh. Yeah, just uh, as long as we don't forget it. Yeah, <laughs> if someone, if anyone right now knows they're absolutely they want to come into the church, um, and we we would like your letter to Father Willie saying so. Um, if you if you know, if you don't. You're not ready yet. Fine. You know we can talk about it next week. But if any of you do know for sure, this is where I want to go. Um, then what we would like to do is uh, the trip. The parishes have these rituals that happen um, basically over the next two months. They're called the scrutinies of the candidates coming into the church. So you would get blessings in front of your in your parish. You go up with the catechumens and the, the candidates, and they pray for you. And they have three different scrutinies. And we never managed to make it for our program students to be getting those <laughs> things right. because we start late and then we do things differently. So, um, but Father would very much like those of you who know you want to be Catholic. Um, you know, you're you're all set uh, to do that now. Um, <clears throat> if you're not, um, that's fine. You know, we've got a long way to go. Hopefully, you're still learning. There's, hope you're having fun, and and we'll see um, where we are. You know, and the truth is, you can become. Catholic anytime. We would love to have you come in with the other candidates and catechumens who come in at Easter time, but um, you know we don't want to rush this. And uh, so, okay. And just uh, on Father Don, he he does have an office here at uh, oh, cool. at Family Theater, and uh, he's got six months. He'll speak himself, I'm sure, uh, it more fully later on. Yeah. But uh, but he's here at Family Theater uh, generally five days a week, so you can reach him at the Family Theater member. And he is uh, working on a special project called New Ethos. And both Cardinal Mahoney and Cardinal George have been in consultation with each other. And he has the full approval of them. Cool. And maybe, Father, and next week we're going to be, can you come next week? Because maybe here. we can have you give a, like, a little sure. talk about it. Yeah, sure. okay, it's just good. important that you that know it's worth it. Yeah. Very good. Yes. Um, we also have our mentors coming up here that we wanted to have a little, you know, get to know you party. So if you guys. Uh, does it work better to do it during the week in the evening, like on a Thursday night or something, or is it you know, Thursday night? How's that? Yeah. Would a Thursday night work? Um, it's I don't know. I I, I want to give you like two weeks notice, so probably like two weeks from now. Yeah. Thursday? Well, that that's um almost Ash Wednesday, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Pretty close. Lent is very early this year. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, we'll try to. I'll get you an email about that <coughs> maybe today or tomorrow. All right. Okay, guys. Thank you very much. Uh, God bless. See you next week. Thank you.